Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Conjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. On today's episode of The Grower and the Economist, we have a guest from the academic community, Dr. Alicia Rin from the University of Tennessee. And Alicia, thank you for joining us this morning. Would you start us off by describing your path in horticulture and your academic uh, background for us, please? Sure, Peter. So I got my undergraduate in horticultural sciences at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls, studying under Terry Ferris. And When I got to the end of that degree, I realized that there was a bit more need in the industry to understand some of the business side, some of the consumer mentality. So I started exploring graduate programs. And what I found was that the University of Minnesota, they had a new hire, Dr. Ching and Yu, who was looking at the consumer behavior element in horticultural sciences. And so I got accepted to that grad program, went to master's and PhD studying with Ching Yan Yu. And from there, when I finished up that program, I was really focusing on the consumer side. What do they want? What do they value? How can we communicate that as horticulturists, as an industry to essentially drive up value as well as kind of overcome plant blindness? Well, I wrapped up studies there and ended up going cross-country in February from Minnesota down to uh, University of Florida. They have a research center outside of Popka, and I was offered a postdoc with Dr. Heike Ketchatron. And really what I was hired to do there was look at the Fresh From Florida campaign and how using that local in-state promotion, how that influenced the consumer's perceptions and value of ornamental plants from Florida. So I worked with him for several years as a postdoc, and then Tennessee had a position open up where it's in the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics. And really the focus is on specialty crops. So your nurseries, greenhouse, ornamentals, as well as all the value-added products with those products um, and fruits and vegetables, of course. So it was kind of a roundabout trip going from the north to the south and then landing in the middle. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you. Is your appointment a teaching research? uh, Do you have extension, a three-way appointment, or or what what is it? It's a two-way. So I'm 75% research, 25% extension. Okay, so no formal undergraduate uh, teaching? No, not at this point. Uh, Michelle is teaching at the uh, undergraduate level in economics, and I, I'm sure that the two of you will have uh, many things, thoughts, and ideas to share. Um, thanks for that background. Uh, I enjoy hearing the p- various paths that people take to get to where we end up. Uh, And learning a little bit about you in the run-up to today's recording, I understand we have a a very good mutual friend in Dr. Bridget Behe at Michigan State University. Oh yes, Bridget's amazing. I reached out to her and just asked about if she had heard of your podcast and she goes, oh yeah, I think you should do this. So yeah, I was very excited. 
Bridget and I go back to our graduate school days at Ohio State in the late 70s and early 80s. So we struck up a friendship. Uh, at that point, uh, my graduate advisor assumed her uh, major advising after her advisor met an unfortunate um, premature death. So um, we share a uh, graduate advisor and uh, Occasionally, she'll say, well, did you talk to George? How's he doing? And I'll say, no, I haven't talked to him in a year. How about you? Um, okay, that that we can edit right out of the conversation. But uh, <laughs> Alicia, now that we, we know um, your interests and, and, and what, what some of your job comprises, um, let, me, let me offer a couple of thoughts from my perspective as a decades-long a researcher and consultant on the production side of, of commercial greenhouse industry. There are so many times in the past, Alicia, at uh, conference speaking engagements or in trade magazine articles where people like me, researchers and consultants in the production of horticultural crops will end the presentation or end an article with a couple of paragraphs about the economics of what we just talked about at length. So, so we'll go through research reports and how we're learning to use chemical growth regulators or manipulate the crop. And it's almost as an aside at the end to just throw in a couple of paragraphs about the economics. And as I age, I've become more and more tuned into how, how poorly we were presenting that. And I'm welcoming young, our next generation of researchers and leaders like yourself. In fact, Bridget and I have had a conversation about these young, amazing uh, ec economists that are coming into the horticultural field. So what, what I welcome is you folks sharing with us earlier in the article or in the conversation, well, okay, wait, wait a minute, guys. Yes, it's all about growing the plants and selling the plants, but let's start thinking about the economics a couple of steps ahead of or sooner than what you're traditionally thinking. Can you comment on that? What's your experience been via Florida and Tennessee? Well, it seems like in, a, in the whole economics are being recognized a bit more than they have been in the past. And as a result, as you have the bench scientists going out and collecting this data and trying to see what they can physically do, they're asking us to come in and ask about the economic sustainability of it. Is it viable? Is it something they can make money on? Or is this something that's interesting and important, but it may not necessarily be the most economically feasible. So we have, I'm seeing more of that occur. There also is an increased value in understanding that consumer element, right? So how, what can we present to the consumer in order for them to identify increased value with that product? So that's more what I'm seeing in terms of uh, kind of the shift in research and the inclusion of economics in uh, some of the research that's currently going on. Okay, that, that's uh, excellent and, and, and very good to know. I think what our growers are learning with us and from us is that it's a complex equation and it's not as simple as just putting a rooted cutting of a geranium or a poinsettia in a pot or getting a nutrient film 
uh, system charged up with lettuce seedlings, that there's a holistic approach that needs to be taken here. So I think um, it's refreshing that production uh, expert like me is communicating with an economist like you. But I think as we leave this introductory platform, building the foundation, I, I believe you've had more horticultural production training in your formal education than I had business training in mine. So I think that's all good stuff. And, and I'm sure that that's filtering down to the undergraduate level where they're hearing more of both sides, uh, whether they are a business um, a major or, or a, uh, a production major. All right, thank you. That, that gets us off and running. Um, now, what I'd like to do is hear from you, describe a little bit of your current research. And Alicia, with, with the slant that Michelle and I aim our podcast and our effort at helping small growers in particular um, navigate the problems and challenges that they have in their either farms, greenhouses, or vertical indoor farms. So how, how are you sensing, this is a very broad question and I'm gonna let you just take it where you, where you please, but um, how is your research um, aiming at smaller growers slash the locally grown food movement, if this is all sounding um, you know, like like it meshes together for you. How how are you aiming your career at those objectives that I just listed? Hmm. Well, so one of the things that I really appreciate about smaller growers is their ability to adapt. Right. So some of the research I've been involved with here in the past couple of years have to do with pollinator plants and neonicotinoid insecticide use or not use and labeling that to uh, see what the consumer's reaction is. Now, your smaller growers can adapt a little bit faster than some of those larger production systems, and they can also communicate that with the end consumer a little bit quicker because they have less economies of scale, right? So for instance, back to that pollinator-friendly uh, study, what we found was that 75% of consumers were more likely to purchase a plant that was produced in a pollinator-friendly manner. Now, two things come to mind. First, when you say a pollinator-friendly manner, that can include planting pollinator strips, that can include having uh, plant species available that have more uh, nutrient content. You know, it's a broad category, but then the second element there is communicating that to the end consumer. People assume just looking at plants that if it has a flower, it is pollinator friendly. That's not always the case. They have preferences. There are certain pollen or certain plants that can aid biodiversity, they can aid pollinator health through more nutrition or habitat, things along those lines. Well, your small grower can take that information and really infuse it with their product and communicate it with that consumer in order to generate interest, generate awareness, and generate value for them. Um, 
So that's uh, one example that comes to mind right off the bat. Some of the others I'm involved with deal more with um, production costs and whether it's feasible with the growers to grow products in certain ways. For instance, I'm involved with a grant that's looking at flat-headed boar uh, and how we and potential future control measures and whether that is uh, feasible from the grower standpoint as well as then on the consumer side, whether some of those um, options are acceptable to them. So again, this is something that being aware of both sides, the industry and the consumer, allows your growers to adapt to different control measures that work for their operations. So does that really fit into these shorter value chains where the consumer and the grower are more linked? Is that how the um, small growers are able to communicate better these messages or can it be through labeling or other initiatives? Um, so I think that it does come down to having that shorter uh was it value chain? Is that how you described it? Would you describe it a different way? I no, it makes sense. It's just it's it's been a while since I've uh, talked with those words. You know, <laughs> um, no, I think it does come down to that shorter value chain in that they're able to adjust and make changes um, a little bit faster. And they also have a little, depending on how they're selling, right, whatever their retail outlet is, if it's on site at their farms or they have a good relationship with that retailer, it's an independent garden center, they're able to make those suggestions a little more freely than, say, a system that's a little bit longer, a little bit larger. Alicia, you started with the comment. Um, Michelle, haven't you and I repeatedly talked about the advantage that small growers have, we call it being nimble and able to turn on a dime, Alicia. And you started off with your own phrase. Um, I, I've forgotten how you how you stated it, but uh, in essence saying that there is an advantage that small growers have, and that is that they can react and respond to the marketplace more quickly than, than sometimes larger operations, that economies of scale that you brought in. Yeah, they're very adaptable. And that's really a cool thing to see because they also tend to be a little more proactive and can get more interesting things out there in front of the consumer. Michelle, that was that was pretty interesting. And um, I'm, I'm going to ask the, the two of you to pursue that a little bit more, The this chain of communication that the small growers have that can be a little more efficient in that it's shorter and more direct with, with the consumer, with their customers. Would either one of you like to continue on that, on that vein? I mean, the way I've been seeing it is, you know, I'm doing some work um, in, in the Colorado River Basin. And so then there's questions about uh, water savings. And so you know, could you can could you convey that message to consumers? And it looks like um, it, it feels like there would be an opportunity there because people are living in this environment where they're conscious about water use. So products being sold in the region might be able to get that higher price point um, or more uh, uptake because consumers understand water 
conservation and um, and how it impacts them. So if they were to sell outside of the region, I think it would be a harder sell. But a lot of the conversations I've had have said that it needs it does need to be this shorter chain where it's either the farm selling directly to the consumer or like Alicia said, selling to a retailer that's able to give that message to the consumer. Because if it is a lot of steps and if there's a lot of processing or anything else that happens in the middle, the farm and the retailer aren't on the same page and then they're not able to explain that story and those conditions. And so I find it really interesting that with the smaller growers that there's this sweet spot that if you look carefully, you can often find this market that either they're able to storytell or they're able to produce the right size or they're able to produce in the right season. And that gives them this really interesting competitive advantage, but they have to be adaptable and be creative and, and try to find those niches for themselves. I agree. And I also, you bring up the interesting point of regionality. Our industry is very regional. And so you talk about water savings and the value added to that. When in Florida, smart irrigation was very important among homeowners because it reduced their water bills. There was a water shortage there. I'm now in Knoxville. Water shortages are not nearly the issue that they are in other areas. But here, it's more of a natural environment, a more native. Um, so more things along those lines would be important to the growers in this area where, okay, focusing on pollinators, focusing on native plants, focusing on more things that are related to this region would be a value. Um, so I think that's something that's very important to talk about here that you have your regional value added opportunities that you need to be aware of. And it may not, depending on where you're selling, it may not be the same between where you are located and where your retail outlet is located. That, that's such an excellent point that, you know, we need to understand in agriculture and horticulture, it's not one size fits all necessarily. And that these different regions are very different in terms, from, from my world, Alicia, in terms of production, of course, you know, we have more, more light down south than we have up north. We have to supplement light up up north where where you're from, where I'm from in New England. And uh, we have a whole different set of challenges production-wise, depending on where we are, the water that Michelle's mentioning. Um, Alicia, so the, the original, um, the, the, the goal, what brought Michelle and me together on the podcast was last year as COVID was unfolding, um, we decided to team up and uh, make this effort to try and help small growers navigate, in particular, supply chain disruption caused by the, at that point, unfolding pandemic. We've gone through a year, and I'm sure you're hearing what we're hearing, and that is that it was a very good year for um, horticulturists, greenhouse operators, farmers. Um, and we've talked about the reasons for that and, and what we might expect in year two as the pandemic winds down. With that as a backdrop, can you offer any of your observations and experience over this past year related to the pandemic and how our commercial growers are 
uh, responding to it. Okay. So I am seeing very similar trends to what you're describing, that the supply chain slightly disrupted, that we are we had a phenomenal year last year, right? And this year, just from what I'm hearing, people are already, wholesalers are already, already selling out of their crops, right? So it's looking like it might be another decent year for us. Now, I'm going to flip this and talk about from the consumer side a little bit more, the retail side, because we just did a study looking at, okay, consumer, how were you shopping for plants before the pandemic? How did you shop for them during the pandemic? And how did you shop for them after the pandemic? Or how do you plan on shopping for them after the pandemic? And is it changing? What should we as, how should the retail outlets adapt. Well, and what we found was that no big surprise there that people were more likely to be purchasing online or doing curbside pickup. And what was interesting though is we asked them, okay, after that pan- after the pandemic is over in a post-pandemic world, what are your plans? Are you going to maintain that method? Are you going to revert back to the way you were before? What do you think? And what we found was that people who are currently doing curbside pickup plan on going back to in-store shopping for their plants. They like that experience. They like that engagement with those uh, products. They like to pick their own. However, those who are doing online shopping, they're more likely to do a combination of what they did before the pandemic, as well as their online purchasing. And what we suspect is happening is increased familiarity. Because if you think about buying a product online, especially a live product, there's a little more risk, right? Is it going to be delivered well? If you're in the North, is it going to freeze on your doorstep? Things along those lines that they're ga- they were gaining familiarity by experiencing this in the um, during the pandemic. But in terms of really wanting to get into the retail and experience the plants, people are still planning on more so going to your brick and mortar stores, because I think it was right around 54% of our sample indicated that they were planning on going back to the way they shopped for plants prior to the pandemic. On that point, a personal observation. Last week, I had a reason to uh, go to a local shopping mall to get to a store that that was inside the mall. I had not, ladies, been in the mall physically for almost a year. And I came back that evening and said to my wife, it felt so good just to walk around, not even to go into the stores, but just to experience that part of life again, just to walk up and down. It wasn't crowded, but there were others walking around. And it's almost like the social person in me being a, uh, private sector, Alicia, I work out of the home office, my research greenhouse is in the backyard. So I often go through a whole day not seeing anybody except the ugly guy in the mirror. And, and I'm like, I like it that way. I'm an introvert at heart. But it felt good to get out into the into the mall last week. So to what you're saying, I, I, I agree with, with with that observation. Let me ask the next question. Michelle and I have tossed this around with many of our guests, and that is, given that we were all pleasantly surprised that growers had a good season during the, um, during the pandemic, um, 
How much of that are we expecting is going to be permanent, Alicia, in terms of some of the business that these small growers experienced? Um, others are saying to us, some of it will remain permanent, but some of it will go away. I think your comment of a moment ago will indeed confirm that in that some people are saying, okay, I'm not really gonna be interested in curbside pickup any longer. I'd rather go back in the store. Can you comment on that, please? So I wish my crystal ball was a little bit clearer. You know, it's <laughs> it's tough to predict the future, especially when it comes to this type of thing. Um, I would, ex it seems like the consumer is more, um, they're being driven a little bit more towards interesting, towards sustainable, towards value-added products that align with their goals. Now, different consumer groups have different goals. You know, your consumer that's going to your independent garden center is different than the one that's going to your big box store. And they're going there because there's something there that they value. So in terms of what you're seeing right now, if you're seeing a bump in people going to your independent garden center or people going to that big box store, I think we'll see something very similar. Um, however, we all know that there's a very strong correlation between the housing market and our industry and our sales, right? So right now we're still in a housing boom. There's a shortage of supply. There's still demand there. And as a result, we are seeing more demand for our products. I'm hoping that it continues and that we have this young generation of new plant purchasers, right? And they are the ones who are looking for a little more interesting products. They tend to seek out things that are of interest to them. And I think that through the pandemic, they've gotten to have positive experiences with plants because they're home. They're able to take care of this product. They're able to do interactions with it that maybe they wouldn't have had the opportunity or time to do if they were not in their home as often as they were during the pandemic. And I think that through those positive experiences, we may be capturing an additional market that until the pandemic hit and lockdown hit, we weren't necessarily experiencing. That's really interesting. And I love that there's, you know, potentially new, because that was going to be my question. Are there new grower, are there new plant purchasers that we expect to stick around? Um, but just that positive reinforcement on such a challenging year, I could definitely see. And into Christmas, we really saw it with the Christmas tree sales starting so early into Thanksgiving and people just wanting either to start the holiday season or to have that tree. And so um, I haven't really thought about it, but it's it's interesting to see how many. I mean, it would be really cool to see how many people continue these just because of those positive feelings. And the other one that comes up is there's this vertical farm that I've worked with in Delaware and they got started because he was setting up um, plants in prisons because it just, it working with the plants and caring for the plants just really had such a positive impact on, you know, the people there. And so seeing that in our day-to-day -day lives and making that more accessible could be really interesting moving forward. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Michelle, I want to thank you very much for bringing my memory of selling Christmas trees back to front. My back automatically started hurting after all those <laughs> those darn trees in and out of the greenhouse to keep them away from the snow. Thank you, dear, very much. This week, it was Christmas trees. A couple weeks ago, it was those itchy vines from the cucurbits. I'm really bringing back all your best memories. <laughs> um, Alicia, on on the uh, the topic of of new consumers and new interest in in any agricultural, you know, broader than just the ornamental, um, my historical perspective is that for most of my career, um, we failed. We 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 did not succeed in attracting new consumers, particularly interest from urbanites, and it's so refreshing for me now to see so many city folk tuning into agriculture. And the flip side of the coin, we as agriculturists paying more attention to urban deserts and people who live in the cities. Can you comment on, on how that kind of blends into some of your research, some of your um, your sense of, of where this is all going. It's, it seems that we're doing a better job in all coming together a bit. I think there's a big opportunity for merging the exterior scapes, the natural world plants with our interior scapes and helping bring people that sense of peace and happiness within their homes. You know, you have this structure that is all man-made materials and you can soften it with including plants with including something alive and then if you think about those health benefits beyond the psychological health benefits we also have air purifying qualities things along those lines that the end consumer is starting to appreciate more and i'm not I'm not 100% sure, but I think it comes back to one, connecting back with the heritage, connecting back to that land, feeling that sense of connection that people are striving for now as we're becoming, we're becoming more urban, we're becoming a little more um, independent. I mean, you, you talk about working out of your home. This is one way that you can help connect back to something and ground yourself. Um, there's also this sense of caring for something, right? Maybe you're not in a position or don't have the space or don't have the income. You're an apartment dweller and it costs more to have a pet, right? It doesn't cost you more to have a plant. You know, they're pretty forgiving. And there are ways, there are certain, you know, routines that you get into where you can water them, you can give them fertilizer and they're happy as can be as long as they have light. Um, additionally, if you think about uh, millennials, they're now getting to the point of being first-time home buyers. They're having children. And some of them who have moved to urban settings, myself included, now have kids where we want to teach them these hands-on skills, but at the micro level because we have kids and don't have a lot of time, right? So you can do that with a single plant, with a small raised bed, with things along those lines where you can re... It's really about reconnecting. Right. And adding value and adding emotional health through having these products in your living space or with an easy access to yourself and your family. You mentioned the, the children and, and I know that Michelle 
is uh, doing exactly what you you just described with some raised beds in the backyard and her her young daughter is really tuned into the gardening it sounds like you and and your family are doing the same and i'm at the stage where i have grandchildren that the are the ages of your children and i'm enjoying just basking in in watching them enjoy plants so I think that's a very cool thing and it will do nothing but help us in the future as we uh, tackle the problem of, of feeding this growing population. Um, Michelle, what, do you have any other points uh, while we have Alicia on board? Well, I think, I guess my question is, is there a difference at all in what you're seeing between ornamental and horticulture or vegetable plants or produce plants, especially for those people bringing them into their house? So is it the beauty that they want or is it the food in that option or is it both? So it depends on what that consumer group is, right? So research on say food production plants show that men, young men, so those who are, you know, 20 to 30 are buying more of those vegetable transplants. They want to be involved with food or um, mixology, right? Growing herbs to make a mixed beverage, things along those lines. Now the house plants are more those urban dwellers and as well as people interested in decor and brightening the living space. Um, because when you think about vegetable production, right, you need light, you need um, space. Now with indoor lighting options, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to Amazon at all, but they have a lot of options out there for your home owner who has limited space. And they're only, you know, a two foot by two foot space that you could do in an apartment, but it's relatively compact, right? Um, but in the normal sense, you need space to do food production at a level where you're getting a fair amount for your family. Whereas these indoor plants are, they're approachable, they're doable for anyone in any situation. You know, there's low light plants that you can have if you have a low light situation. And there are ones that require either more light, more attention, if you're someone who has the time that you want to spend caring for this product and seeing it flourish. So it really depends on that consumer and what they want to get out of that product and their interactions with that product. We've talked a lot, Alicia, with various guests about home gardeners and, and what, what is reasonable for them to expect in terms of how much of their weekly greens they can produce in a reasonable with a reasonable effort so your comment kind of drills right right down to that you know there's there's okay the uh, uh, this theoretical or the emotional oh it would be nice if I can produce all my own food but then the reality is very different and uh, most are in, in my garden center days we would we would grow a, a patio tomato plant, for Mother's Day in Massachusetts. And in mid-May, I would have grown it, uh, sown it really early in the season and grown it so that it, there would be green fruit at the point of sale. Mm -hmm. And it was always, you know, you had a few customers that would just get so excited over seeing a, a, a tomato almost ready to pick. 
And uh, for those customers that I knew personally, I would always joke and say, you know, this is going to be the most expensive tomato you ever eat if you consider, you know, what, what you're spending. But but then I'd say, but I understand it's so exciting that, that that's worth whatever. And, and they would just be tickled to carry it to their trunk and and come back a month or two later and tell me how many tomatoes they picked. So I think it's all beauty in the eye of the beholder, so to speak, and we get out of it what, what we want to get out of it. Um, you mentioned regionality, and we kind of focused on that, Alicia, early on in this conversation. As we wind down our conversation, I want to put my money where my mouth is. And as with these articles that I cited earlier, that we made sure we we talked about economics when we finished discussing our research on how to grow a crop. So practicing that same um, um, objective here in the conversation as, as we wind down, I'm going to ask you if, if the regionality is something that we all agree is important, are there a couple of tips or points that you could share with our listeners that that help them navigate within their region what they might be looking for either in this season's consumer or in their production plans and I, I hope I'm not being confusing with the question but if you could bring the conversation back to okay guys depending on where you are we understand that things might be different here are a few things that you might be looking for yeah, and I would say being plugged into your consumer and your local news and what's going on in the environment is really key there. You may see, okay, uh, erosion is an issue. Okay, well, then let's focus on our ground covers that help maintain that soil structure. Maybe it's water. Okay, well, here are some plants that require less water that'll reduce your water bills that will help conserve more water. If it rains, it'll hold the water there rather than letting it run down to the road and pollute our water's resources. Um, pollinators is always popular, at least right now it is, and anything that improves biodiversity in the environment, that one's a little more universal. You know, whatever it is that can help the environment in your area where your customer is, you should try and focus on those or at least bring it to your consumer's attention because it might influence what they go for. But I guess in the broad general, uh, in the overall, I would say focus on what you're seeing in your area, focus on what news your consumer is seeing because that does influence their choices and preferences. Thank, thank you, that's excellent advice. I'm going to perhaps, as I wind down my questions, my next one to the two of you as, as economists is uh, going to be on, on this same topic, Alicia, and, and that is uh, we're talking about small growers, their connection to the consumer, that shorter, uh, more direct um, avenue. Um, is it true that when we talk about the big box retailers, um, is it true that it's more difficult for them to react on a regional basis because their, their network is, is built to be so consistent and efficient? In other words, is this another place where the small grower has an advantage 
in that he or she can do what you're saying, Alicia, watch the news, react to the news, adjust their marketing, adjust their production, whereas the big boxes might have a little more difficulty with the subtleness of reacting to the local marketplace. Well, I would say that they can, the smaller growers can definitely leverage it. Um, they can use it as an opportunity to also have a little more trial and error because if you provide the consumer some more information that promotes a positive, well, okay, that's not going to hurt you. What would hurt you is if you say something that's inaccurate, right? So this, this survives with very low water and it dies on very low water. That would not be helpful. But if you find this other information that could be helpful and in when you look at your numbers at the end of the year and that helped, then you can know that, okay, maybe I should adopt more of messages along these lines next year and target more of my production methods and strategies towards this direction. One of the um, challenges of those large box stores is that they have standardization across the nation. And if you talk about our regional differences, that can be a huge challenge and tough for them to communicate with that consumer what the individual plants benefits are and how those are going to respond to that local environment. That's, that's really nice to hear. And uh, okay, as, as I wind down, um, Alicia, I'm going to uh, keep keep uh, riding this regionality topic a little bit. And I'm going to say to you with a big smile, please don't ever lose your upper Midwest accent. I grew up <laughs> in, in the Boston area, so I, I carry my Boston accent with me proudly. So, so we, we all grew up in our own regions and we want to uh, adapt and, and, you know, kind of modify to fit wherever we are, but let's not lose all of, what makes us who we are, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. This was this was very interesting. And I have to tell you, as I've traveled, like I said, to Florida and then up to Tennessee, people look at me and they go, hmm, I think you're from the Midwest. You're not from here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I lost my accent years ago, but not so much. <laughs> so I often say I've learned how to uh, kind of hide mine when I'm out speaking at conferences, but as soon as I get home, you know, it just, it, it, it comes out. So, um, you know, my, my last point, Alicia, we've talked about how much of the, um, the good um, response growers have seen might be permanent. Um, there's, there's a flip side of the coin that, that I fear a bit. And I'm, I believe very strongly as a, as a uh, commercial producer, that we have to be careful of our shrinkage and the amount of crop that we dump. And Michelle and I have done episodes solely on shrinkage. Um, and I, I try hard not to sound like a downer given today's conversation and the fact that growers had a good season and they're planning on another good season. But there's a part of me that's been around this block before and has ridden this rodeo. And at some point, things might catch up. And I'm fearful that um, we, we don't take too much of this for granted. I want our small growers to get as much of this uh, extra business as is possible. Um, 
Do you have any comment on that as a closing statement? I mean, we want to do more business, but we don't want to be so greedy and uh, expect it that we dump things. Well, I think there's an old saying that says bigger, bigger business means bigger problems. So just be aware of your limits. Um, make wise choices. And if you're bringing in more profit now, save some of that so you have a cushion in future years where maybe it's not as um, not as busy as this year. So just be aware of your limits, be aware of your strengths, play towards those strengths, and plan accordingly. Michelle, I can't think of a better way to end this episode than with Alicia's comments there. No, so that's perfect. And especially because this last year was a complete unknown and this year raises a lot of questions that we, you know, we don't know what to expect. And so any of that cushion really makes a huge difference. Alicia, thank you again. It's a pleasure to meet you. I hope this is the beginning and, and not just a, a one-off so that uh, we can collaborate together. Agreed. Thank you so much for this opportunity, guys. I really do appreciate it. 